This is TechSnap, episode 397, for February 13th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's systems, network, and administration podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm very pleased to be joined once again by the master of IP tables, <laughs> Mr. Jim Salter. Welcome to the show, Jim. What's up? Boy, you know, we've been doing a lot of chatting as we're getting ready to record today, and one thing that keeps coming up is, I think we both have found a similar set of tools and end up kind of applying them in similar ways, and one of those themes has been making Linux do all the things, especially at a network level. You've, you've got a great series of articles over at ours about setting up like a, a Linux home router to do all the things without having to use one of those crappy little router boxes provided by your ISP. And, and I've got something similar implemented. Yeah, but I need to update those articles because, uh, you know, at the time that I wrote them, everything was very, very bare bones. And the one piece of the puzzle that was still missing was QoS. Uh, you know, when you when you've got your BitTorrent section going, and uh, you know you're you're seeding a ton of Linux ISOs or you know whatever, and you're saturating your pipe up and down, uh, it doesn't matter how great your router is. If you don't have any QoS, everything sucks. You've got SSH sessions open, and you know you're typing and waiting for the actual characters to show up, or just you know you're you're clicking links and web pages and taking forever things to open or every once in a while, you know, it just doesn't and you have to hit refresh and you're just like, ah! Yeah, it sits there stalled. You're wondering like, what's going on? I'm paying for nice internet. Exactly. And you know, I mean, to some degree, I mean, a lot of people have problems with that, you know, I mentioned BitTorrent specifically, people never tune their BitTorrent client and it's always just way too aggressive for, you know, what their pipe and their hardware can actually manage. But, uh, you know, even when you've tuned your BitTorrent client, to the point where, you know, it, it will make use of the resources that you have and no other resources. The problem is just that, uh, you know, when you've got 500 different TCP sessions open, yeah, it works. But without QoS, what ends up happening is even though everything technically isn't overloaded, your one little download session that you're wanting to do on your browser is not competing with one you know, BitTorrent TCP session, it's competing with 500 of the freaking things. So it's terrible. Yeah, exactly, right? We live in a world where not only do you have a whole bunch of different devices connected to your network trying to initiate connections, but even just on your laptop, let's say, you're making all kinds of connections. And by default, it, it's just kind of the Wild West. There's no way to know that, okay, well, maybe maybe the request to Dropbox from the user system should be should be more important than just the, the nightly backup that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of a shame that some of this stuff, at least, isn't just, you know, built into Linux automatically. Like, and it's, this is the year 2019. It, it kind of feels like your own workstation at least should be aware that, you know, your SSH session needs lower latency than, you know, the browser that you have open on the same box. But A, that's not the case. And B, even if it were, there's nothing that your machine can do about the browsing session on somebody else's machine in your house versus your own SSH session. So at that point, you know, you really have to have it on the router. Let's talk about that a little more because we haven't yet defined exactly what we're talking about with QoS, quality of service. Quality of service, yeah. So, um, you know, your your basic things on quality of service is you've only got so much network to go around and you need to divvy it up fairly or maybe even unfairly, but the way you want it divvied up between the various things that might be going on on your network, whether it's browsing or checking email or, you know, remote desktop, SSH, whatever. 
And what makes it even more complicated is that these different applications, they, they need to be prioritized in different ways. Uh, you know, you want your browser session, uh, you know, the interactive stuff, you, you want it to happen quickly. You want low latency. You want to click a link and have the new page happen. But when you're downloading a big file, you don't really care about latency. What you need is as much throughput as you can manage. Um, and then when you've got SSH or RDP, well, you know, latency is absolutely critical there because you want to move your mouse and actually have it move on the other end when you're doing a remote desktop, or, you know, you want to be able to type a command in your shell and have it actually do something now and not just, you know, sit there hitching and glitching like it's 1978 and you're on a 110 baud teletype. Okay. So without, without any of that, what does a network look like? Is this just first come first serve for everyone? Yeah. Uh, for, so for the... And, you know, this can be a little bit different from router to router, but for the most part, it kind of does its best. But your your router, unless somebody has set up some kind of QoS on it, it doesn't really just natively understand how much bandwidth it has to work with on the upstream end, for, for one thing. So it's not just going to automatically say, well, I need to shape everything to fit in a 100 meg uh, download pipe and a 10 meg upload pipe, for instance. Um, it's just going to kind of be handling everything, like you said, Sort of first come, first serve. Um, for the most part, they're pretty good about trying to divvy up bandwidth equally between sessions or processes. But like I said, when you've got a uh, when you've got a protocol that is opening lots and lots and lots of sessions for what effectively is one action, it'll kind of drown your network. If you remember back in the day, like in the early to mid 2000s, uh, you know, downloaders were really popular, like a plugin that you would put in your browser that would, uh, you know, automatically download a file from a remote site and it would try to download it with, you know, four, eight, 12, uh, you know, parallel processes with the idea that things would go faster that way. Well, the reason it would go faster is because if you have four processes, you're getting allocated four times as much resources on that remote server as if you were only using one. You're basically cheating everybody else, but that was why it worked. Sure, it's sort of an unfair way, knowing that most most things on the edge will, will just wait evenly across every single connection session. As, as you're talking about, then you just want more of those sessions. Yeah, it was really just exploiting the weakness of the system. You're like, okay, great. So, you know, everybody, it's fair to everybody that's downloading. So let me be for somebody's now. And this is a concept that's been around for a while, right? So this is something that already exists in circuit switched networks or, or cell phone stuff, 3G, th those sorts of systems. And then there's been multiple attempts in, in the packet switched world, of course, for, for bigger things, for um, VPN's connection between sites, there's often stuff like MPLS. But what we're talking about today is, is using the Linux kernel to accomplish a lot of the stuff. Yeah, and we should mention that, you know, some of the, uh, some of the consumer routers will offer at least they'll claim to offer QoS and it will look pretty and you can tell it, oh, well, I want you to prioritize stuff from this machine or sometimes you can even tell it, I want to prioritize, you know, things that are this protocol and this port. The problem is that for the most part, most of those consumer routers that offer QoS, it just does not work, unfortunately. Um, it looks easy to use. It looks like exactly what you want, but when you actually test it, it all falls apart. Yeah, you know, it is it is kind of a shame. And unfortunately, between that and sort of the inherent, if not difficulty, perhaps obscurity of some of the, the command line tools available to do QoS on Linux, and we can talk about that a little bit more, it's just a system that that hasn't seen much use, despite all the advantage you're talking about. Stuff like like making sure SSH always connects, even if you're you're having a whole bunch of other bandwidth on the system, or make sure that just each of your users always gets a fair share of the system, that one can't monopolize it. 
And yeah, the command line stuff is just absolutely brutal. The Linux kernel is capable of doing this stuff. And, you know, we have the tools to manipulate. We've had the tools to manipulate it for a long time, but they are just incredibly arcane. Um, I usually fear no command line tool. But when, you know, I started having issues where I'm like, you know, I, I want to be able to just max out my download pipe and my upload pipe with BitTorrent, but I also want my SSH sessions to be responsive. I was like, all right, well, you know, let me look at what all the tools are. Okay, here's this Wonder Shaper thing everybody talks about, but it's basically just a front end for, you know, the real tool, which is TC. All right, well, let me ignore Wonder Shaper. Let's just go straight to TC. I can figure this out. And, you know, three hours later, I'm like, okay, I I probably could figure this out, but man, I really don't want to. Let's look at the Wonder Shaper thing. So then you look at Wondershaper, and it just goes way too far in the wrong direction. It is incredibly stupid and simplistic, and uh, it's also effectively unmaintained, and you really shouldn't be using it anymore. And this was an issue that I had trying to use TC directly as well. It can be surprisingly difficult to undo what you've done. Like you, whether you're using, using TC directly or whether you're using you know, the little Wondershaper shell script, uh, once you've applied a profile, it can be surprisingly difficult to just unapply it and make everything normal again without just giving up and rebooting your machine. So that was really frustrating. I, I finally did find what I was looking for, and what I was looking for was a uh, it was a suite called FireQOS. And FireQOS, um, the one thing it does have in common with Wondershaper is it's really just a front end to TC. But where everything changes is that FireQOS will let you get absolutely as granular as you want to. If you very specifically want to say, well, you know, I want to make sure I've got at least a quarter of my pipe available for SSH sessions and I want them to have the, you know, the highest IO priority for lowest latency, you can do that. Uh, if you want to do the same thing for some arbitrary custom service you're running on some arbitrary custom port, you can do that too. It's funny looking at the man page for TC, also known as Traffic Control, which is a part of the IP Route 2 uh, suite of tools on Linux. It goes into some of the theory of how this works with all sorts of different queues that can that can have different mechanisms employed, and you end up building this this rich tree, this hierarchy of different connections that are all pulling and and making it all work. That's incredibly complicated, and it doesn't provide any guidance about how to do this. So. I can see why you wouldn't want to why you wouldn't want to actually use this in any real world scenario. Looking at FireQOS, it sort of describes itself as a traffic shaping helper, a simple language to express traffic shaping. So how how is this different than just using TC at the command line? Well, using TC at the command line is like, you know, you ask a friend, you know, hey, uh, my battery's running low on my phone, where can I plug it in? And he says, "Well, first, you get your EE degree." <laughs> You know, um, it's it's really that complex. I, I honestly can't tell you what it's like to build a working TC profile because I haven't done it. I have flailed around and failed. Um, but FireQOS, on the other hand, when I started out with it, it wasn't in anybody's repositories yet. But it was pretty easy to just, you know, get clone it and uh, compile it and install from there. Now you can just install it direct from uh, Ubuntu or Debian repos, or I believe Fedora and, uh, you know, most of the major ones. So, you know, you're an apt install away. And one of the other things that I truly, truly loved about FireQOS is like you mentioned with TC, you know, you try to dive into it and there's just nothing in the way of, you know, working basic examples you can start from and build on. FireQOS, on the other hand, there was almost nothing I needed to do 
to the just initial default, you know, that's right there on the, you know, in the wiki at their Git project. It's beautiful. It shows you how to define the interface. It shows you, uh, you've got a working example, not just with, you know, a couple of just random, okay, well, here's a couple of things here. But the the basic example conf file, it, it's actually got classes defined for chat, VPNs, interactive, sends and acts, um, you know, everything. There's there's very little modification you really need to even do to it. Wow, yeah, that's kind of the way tools should be. Give me a real easy starting point. Yeah, a, a huge man page can be helpful, but I got to learn the thing first. Yeah, and you know, so when I started out, the one thing that the the one thing that the default script was missing when I started several years ago was uh, the the Synax uh, class that I mentioned. So you know, that's literally referring to TCP send packets and TCP ACK packets. Uh, you know, the uh, the packets that you use to establish a TCP session. And if you don't define a class and prioritize that, then no matter what you've done with the rest of your classes in QoS, if you've really saturated your pipe, you'll have a lot of difficulty, uh, you know, opening up new sessions and you'll be like, well, this sucks. I supposedly have this great QoS, but I, I still click and things don't happen. So you need to prioritize those Sin and Act packets for low latency no matter what and give them just a tiny bit of, you know, your bandwidth dedicated to say, hey, they'll at least have this much to get these sins and acts done to establish the session, but even that's built in now. Oh, really? So it just automatically gives a little a little boost in priority to make things feel snappy. Yeah, and uh, you know where when I started out, you needed to define pretty much everything. You know by ports, uh, you would say, okay, well, you know, I need uh, you know ports yada yada for FaceTime and ports yada yada for Hangouts and uh, you know on down the line. Man, almost everything is like a built-in class now. Uh, my current FireQS uh, config file, it doesn't have any ports defined at all except for my WireGuard server. And the only reason it's got that defined is because there is no canonical WireGuard port. It's just whatever you set it to. Just behind the scenes here, we're recording this and chatting over Mumble. Do you have an entry for Mumble in there? You know, I don't have an entry for Mumble and I probably ought to. And that's one of the main things, one of the main applications that that's often used for QoS, right, is, is stuff like real-time media, streaming, VoIP applications, stuff where you really might need low latency. True, true. Uh, but yeah, you know, looking at my config right now, uh, you know, I've got uh, in my chat class, I've got, you know, FaceTime, Hangouts, Gtalk, Jabber, a couple other things. And that's literally how they're defined. I've got a line that says client FaceTime, one that says client Hangouts, client Gtalk. Client Jabber. And I didn't need to define that. Those are all built-ins now. Wow. Uh, you know, under the VPN class, you've also got, you know, server PPTP, client PPTP, server and client GRE for traditional, you know, IPsec VPNs, server and client for open VPN, none of which I actually had to define because those are just built-ins now. That might feel like a small thing. You know, I'm, I'm certainly familiar with having to go discover what services or, or hope someone else hasn't documented it on the web and be like, okay, here's the ports I can use for this obscure thing. But it saves you so much donkey work, man. <laughs> yeah, and especially for like new users who are, who are a little out of their depth maybe or just getting started trying to be a little more actively involved in managing their network. That's awesome. That's, that's so declarative. It's expressing exactly what you want. You know, like I want Hangouts to work. Great. Well, you know what? I mean, even if you are a 20-year senior sysadmin, it's still freaking great because it's stuff that you don't have to wade through in the config. You're just like, here it is. It's a built-in. It's human-readable. It works. I mean, 
don't get me wrong, I can make a really nice human readable, you know, config file without all this stuff because, you know, it supports comments. You just carefully comment everything. Oh, this is this protocol and this range. And then you do the actual config underneath it. But it's still just extra stuff you have to wade through. Not even having to deal with all that at all, it's pretty sweet, especially given that you can still define your completely custom classes, you know, however you need to, whether it's by protocol, um, the uh, the newest versions of FireQOS, if you're running it, you know, on your individual workstation, you can even track it by process ID, you know, CPU PID, uh, which is great for dynamic stuff like BitTorrent. But uh, point is, you can do anything as custom as you want, but almost everything. You just don't need to. It's already there. Okay, so that's already starting to answer this question. But when I was sort of coming up, uh, when, I, when I was first learning, QoS sort of felt like something, okay, well, maybe the, the network engineer handles that on on all the fancy network appliances that exist and make sure production you know, is doing the right stuff and, and carefully tune and tweak things. And it just wasn't anything I was I was concerned with at home. Mostly stuff worked and I just didn't, you know, it wasn't worth the time to dive into it at the time. Is it really worth it at home? Have you noticed a difference if you didn't tune QoS? Oh my God, yes. It is so worth it. I mean, that's literally the reason that I started doing this is because I needed it. I have enough work day to day that I'm not usually really big into fixing problems that aren't actually problems to begin with. But I mean, that was literally my issue. Um, I don't do as much BitTorrenting as I used to, but for a while there, I was, you know, doing a lot of really heavy BitTorrent, you know, both seeding and peering. And, uh, it would have a very noticeable impact, you know, on the network. And I got really sick of, you know, feeling like, ah, do I have to actually pause this session, you know, while I need to SSH into this other server so I won't be annoyed? Or, you know, do I have to constantly go into my, you know, uTorrent configs and, you know, tweak what the limits are, you know, not just once or twice to get it to my network, but like, oh, I need to have different settings for whether I'm using the system or not. Ah, and, you know, then it's, it's, it's also, it's not just me. It's not just my bit torrenting. You know, if I have literally got all three kids individually streaming crap on their tablets and my wife, you know, doing something else and then me doing something else again, well, that alone can have a significant impact. You know, anybody who has roommates has seen this, you know, everybody's home after work and, all of a sudden, the internet connection kind of sucks. You're just kind of grumbling like, uh, well, it doesn't have to be that way. QoS is what fixes that. Uh, with Fire QoS deployed and uh, all my configs set up, and really, like I said, with very little modification from you know just the default uh, examples that you see on GitHub, uh, I mean, it, it it's perfect. I don't have any problems like that anymore, period. Unless you want to, you know, get into Wi-Fi, uh, you know, you can have some Wi-Fi airtime issues that can't really be solved with QoS that isn't directly tied into, you know, the 8011AC stack itself, um, which that's coming, by the way. The AF10K drivers uh, can manage that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're actually plugged into the network, there, there, just, there are no network problems anymore. Uh, internet quality is always either perfect or... Spectrum is down and we're waiting for them to fix their crap. Right. It's as good as the upstream can give you. And and we'll have all this linked and we'll have examples and all that. Um, but just looking through some of the examples uh, that, that you linked to me. All right. You're like interface, ETH0. And then you say, all right, here it's balanced, it's Ethernet. And set the rate. At, let's say you have a 50 megabit connection. And then it, and the example just goes by and, and says like, okay, mass, match ICMP packets, match DNS, and then make sure it has a commitment of one one megabit or match 
SSH packets and make sure that always gets two megabits of my bandwidth. Yeah, or by percentage. It's just so, like, that is so simple, and it's exactly what I would want, right? You, you just kind of express your intention, and then it figures out all the complicated commands to set that up in a fair way and make it all work in the kernel. Yep. And we should be clear, too, you talked a little bit about kind of the, like, setup and teardown. This isn't some daemon that, like, sits and runs and has overhead. It's basically just compiling to TC calls and, and talking to the kernel, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, TC is not a program that runs in the background. It's just a uh, it's just a command line interface to, to basically tweak settings in the kernel. I mean, the kernel is doing all this stuff, whether you've set up QoS or not. It's just doing it really, really badly if you haven't. So, you know, you're, you're basically just tweaking, uh, you know, settings in the Linux kernel that you're running all the time anyway. Offline, you and I have been talking about some of the benefits here, and you actually did a little bit of a test. Could you tell us about some of those results? Because you, you tore down your setup, you disabled everything, and experienced life before QoS. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a pretty easy way to test for whether you're having you know problems with this kind of thing or not. If you haven't heard the term buffer bloat, you probably should have. Um, any hardcore gaming types out here are probably super familiar with it because you know, gamers like to gripe about buffer bloat and, uh, you know, latency a lot. Uh, there's a site, bufferbloat.net, that can explain what buffer bloat is. But basically, it's the exact same thing we've been talking about here before, um, but it goes into a little bit more detail. So your router can accept way too much data into its transmit and receive buffers, and it's just waiting for a chance to actually do anything with that data. And any new requests, any uh, new sessions that you want to open, any new data that you want to send is just sitting in a queue behind, you know, all the stuff that's been packed into the buffer. And so it adds a lot of latency. Most internet speed tests, they won't help you diagnose that, but there's one that does a really great job of it. It's at uh, dslreports.com. If you go to dslreports.com slash speed test, it will not only give you the usual, you know, this is your upload speed and this is your download speed. It will run buffer bloat tests and it will let you know how much additional latency you're going to experience when your network's under load. So, uh, you know, when I'm running my homebrew Ubuntu router without any QoS, let me take a look here at my prior results. I see 116 megabits down, 11.3 megabits up, but my buffer bloat rating is a D with uh, up to 180 milliseconds of latency injected. And that brings the uh, overall quality rating that DSLreports.com gives for your, uh, your internet connection, brings it all the way down to a C. Ouch. By comparison, when I start FireQS again and run the exact same test, now I see 95 megabits down, I see 9.3 megabits up, and you're like, okay, well, that's a little bit less speed. I don't like that. Except now you're seeing grade A+, 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 with eight milliseconds of maximum injected latency when the network is under the heaviest possible load. And it's worth noting that that's actually worse results than you really get out of things that you're doing that you've tuned your QoS for because all this stuff is happening inside a single class. It's all happening inside the surfing class that you know handles the standard old port 80, port 443 things that are happening inside your browser. If this is really measuring what you were doing with your gaming stuff, you know, if you're into this stuff enough and you've actually defined a class like for your League of Legends or whatever it is that you're doing that you really care about, you wouldn't even be seeing that much added latency because you would have prioritized that higher. If you think about it, a lot of the technologies that we're doing, especially for stuff like TCP, 
the, the state machines in there, the tuning, that was all developed kind of a long time ago. And and some of it's been updated. We've, we've been trying to figure it out. But by default, the defaults just aren't the best they could be. And, and FireQOS can make that something you can easily tune so you know that you always can take the best advantage of your network. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's like a lot of things when you do get into tuning that you really should know what you're tuning for. Uh, you know, a lot of people's immediate reaction is I want the biggest number I can see. Uh, you know, I want to see the biggest number of megabits and that's just wrong. Um, very, very few people are really, really unhappy about that number. What you get unhappy about is latency. Uh, you know, it's that way when I test for Wi-Fi, it's the same thing when we talk about QoS. What you really want to see is, you know, when you wiggle your mouse, you want to see the cursor move. When you click the link, you want to see a page load. When you're playing your game and you turn your character around, you want to see your character turn around. And, you know, the answer to all those problems is not bandwidth, it's latency. Yeah, you see that big number, you're like, oh, look at how much I'm pulling down. But that's not really modeling user behavior. Most of the sites you're doing aren't pulling down hundreds of megabytes, right? You're just want, you're making multiple connections and retrieving small little files. Even when you do want a lot of bandwidth, nobody is really noticing without actually artificially testing it. Nobody feels the difference between 95 megabits and 105 megabits. You just don't. Uh, human perception, we're pretty good at starting to recognize changes of about, you know, a one third factor. Uh, if something's a third faster or a third slower than it was, that's right about where without an artificial benchmark, you're going, huh, is that slower or huh? I think that might be a little faster. Anything less than that, you're not going to notice it your, unless you're actually running a test. So the, the difference between the maximum bandwidth you can possibly get, you know, without any QoS that's reserving any of it for this traffic shaping, it's just not something you'll feel. On the other hand, the difference between, you know, five or six milliseconds of latency and, you know, 500, yeah, you're going to feel that. Have you encountered any major difficulties in, in getting this set up? Are there places that you wouldn't deploy it? Do you use it on servers that you set up, for instance? You know, um, I have not used it. I, I don't really deploy it on individual workstations or servers so much. Um, I mean, I absolutely would if... Uh, if I had servers, you know, like internet deployed servers that were doing a whole bunch of different services, I would absolutely set something up like FireQOS to, you know, prioritize, you know, DNS over, uh, you know, HTTP service. But in practice, you know, I don't really mix those kind of things up anymore because we're in the era of extremely cheap VMs. And rather than try to, you know, stuff everything on a single server in the bottle these days, I'm like, ah, well, you know, at five bucks a month, we got one VM that does DNS and we've got another one that does HTTP. So there's not really a whole lot of need for it so much. I see. You've partitioned at a lower layer already. It's really inside the local network level where you've got a lot more competition for resources than you've got the actual resource to feed. Um, it would certainly be interesting to set up a FireQS profile on, you know, like a VM at Linode that's doing, uh, you know, web service and see, you know, hey, can I get better Apache Bench results out of this thing with FireQS running? But I haven't really felt the need to do that so far because, I mean, basically I've got gigabit WAN there. Um, I absolutely do not have gigabit on the local network. So where you really want the FireQS stuff is where you've got a lot of congestion and you've got competition for a scarce resource. I'm already thinking of, of ways I could use this. And, and one of the nice things about it, right, you could have, you might have a router that has this built in or using some fancy appliance, but the fact that 
It's an easy to install, generally available thing that you can just use with a Linux system. It means I can also set it up on my laptop. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm traveling, I'm in a hotel room, we're trying to record a tech snap. I can make sure that that my mobile connection to you is prioritized, even you know, if I also have to do some stuff in the background, like pull down a new link you sent me that you want to discuss. Oh, absolutely. It is great for that. Um, you can totally prioritize your interactive stuff where, you know, you can have, you know, your YouTube or, you know, the audio you're streaming or whatever, you know, on, a, on another channel and it's, it's not going to interfere. But, you know, honestly, you know, the more you asked me that question about the server and the more I kept talking about it, the more I kept feeling like I'm an idiot and I really need to start testing that and work on that because, yeah, that has totally got to help with the experience when your web server is getting slammed if you've got you know, QoS tuned to the actual pipe you've got available typically from your uh, your your hosting provider. That's another aspect then, and maybe that can lead us to some more discussion about the other tools that are around Fire QoS, but you can really tell that the people working on it and designing it are, are using it in production systems because it's generally pretty robust. It pairs well with stuff like configuration management. So if you were designing different Fire QoS profiles for different types of servers, easy peasy. It's a text file and, and a, you know, and a, a service that you enable and you're done. I can't say often enough how much a thing of beauty that configuration is, or the fact that the default config is actually useful and usable pretty much everywhere. That's not something I say about many projects. No, not at all. Um, and that's one of the things that led me to all, to use sort of the, the sister project, which is Firehole. Uh, and that and that's a, a similar project, but is a general sort of IP tables superset. It's a it's a language to describe firewalls that then compiles down to IP tables commands in very much the same way that FireQOS becomes TC. Fire in the hole. Yeah, and it's it's made by made by some of the, the very same people and the language I find also pretty similar. So you can do stuff where you basically just say, here's a route, let's say from from your local network to the internet, and then you can say what sorts of, of clients and servers that you support. And the language is basically the same as Fire QoS. You have stuff like interfaces, you have clients, you have servers. That's about it. And it makes it really simple to have a, a nice, secure default policy because it's it's deny everything right out of the gate and then you you allow what you want. So you might say like, okay, we'll allow all client requests out from the LAN and block everything coming in because we're not hosting any services. Or with like just one line, you can say, here's the, you know, here's the server that's running my SSH bastion host and allow that through the firewall. Yeah, you know, I got to admit, I never got into Firehole because I had already figured out all the difficult things with IP tables by the time I became aware of it. But uh, the basics of IP tables are pretty basic. But once you start getting into things like needing hairpin NAT rules to make, you know, port forward work, whether you're inside the network or out of it. Yeah, looking at Firehole's language and being able to accomplish that in one rule instead of three different rules in uh, three different sections of the config might be pretty sweet. You know, that's a great point. I, I, I think you should still understand fundamentally how IP tables works. And actually, Firehole can be kind of a nice way to do that because it's got an interactive explain functionality where you can enter Firehole commands and then it'll like print out exactly what it's compiling to in IP tables world. So you can sort of see exactly what it's doing for any test. You can do it without actually applying the system. They've really thought through what it might actually look like to use this in production and, and, and try to use it on your network. I also really like that unlike some other languages, um, it makes it really simple to do things from both sides. So you can you can say like, let me ping everyone, but don't let people ping me. So the stateful stuff is very easy to express as well, which is pretty nice. And it makes it trivial to extend. So like you were talking about with FireQOS, 
there are a lot of defaults. There's a lot of common protocols and ports already defined. But if you need to define more, it's it's basically bash-like. So you can easily extend it, and you can basically just, you know, with, with one or two lines say, here's my custom service. It runs on this port. It uses TCP. Maybe it's three ports and a UDP port. It doesn't really matter. It's all just the same. You list what those are, and then you have full support. Cool. So let's talk net data. Uh, that is the third excellent tool from the folks who brought you Firehall. And, uh, and I'm never quite sure, like, am I supposed to say Firehall or Firehole? It's spelled, you know, Fire H-O-L. Um, so whatever you want to call it, they made Firehall and they made uh, Fire QoS, which is fantastic. They also made a simple uh, web-based monitoring application called NetData that I use pretty frequently. Um, if you've ever used Munin, NetData looks like the prettiest version of Munin with every last plugin you ever could have thought about, but it's much lower rate. Uh, the sampling is much more frequent. And unlike Munin, it doesn't really do, uh, you know, historical reporting. Everything is, you know, it's based on the idea of looking at what your system is doing in real time. So while you can adjust how much data it keeps upwards by default, it only keeps an hour worth of data. And you just kind of watch it flowing by in real time in your browser. I find NetData fascinating for that reason because, you know, I've, I've used all kinds of different monitoring uh, things, collection demons, collect D, stuff for graphite, Nagios, you know, all, all the different things. Um, and NetData started from the just, yeah, just like monitoring one server and it really got that right. And now it's grown a lot more capabilities. So if you have a Prometheus system set up, yeah, NetData talks that. If you've got graphite, it does that too. It doesn't really matter. NetData is so easy to extend, and you can make it talk to whatever system you need. Absolutely. It's also got a whole bunch of really neat stuff, including integration with Firehole and FireQOS. So if you've taken the time to set up all those, you know, the different groups of applications, and you're curious about how your network's actually performing, how bandwidth is being distributed, boom, it's already being collected and shown in NetData. You're really not doing it justice if you just think, oh, well, you know, of course, obviously it interfaces with, you know, these other things in the same overarching project because NetData automatically finds and gets its little sticky fingers into everything. Uh, if you've got a Linux kernel RAID storage on the system that you install NetData on, you're going to get metrics on that. You're going to get metrics on all your file systems. If you've got ZFS installed, you will actually get, uh, you know, a ton of ZFS-specific metrics. If you want to know how much data is in your ARC, how much data is in an L2 ARC if you've got one, or a slog, uh, you know, what your hit rates are, um, I mean, just all kinds of even really arcane things. Like, it's already built in. And the cool thing about it is it's not just that it has all these things built in. It's also very good at, very smart about figuring out, you know, is this appropriate or not? If your system doesn't have a ZFS file system, you're not going to see any of the ZFS graphs. If you don't have an MD RAID mounted, you're not going to see the MD RAID graphs. And on and on and on. Um even, you know, KVM, if you've, uh, if you've got virtualization going on on a machine, you're going to see graphs on all the freaking guests in your KVM. But you won't see that stuff if you're not doing those things. And none of this is anything you even have to touch a config file for. That is huge. Like uh, some of the other tools, like Collecti especially comes to mind, where you have to sort of go look out and be like, okay, which modules do I want to enable? And you uncomment some line in a config file and then you get it. It's crazy. No, NetData just goes out and discovers everything. It's easy to install. You can install it on just about 
any Linux-like system that you come into contact with, and boom, suddenly you have all this data, and it comes with its own beautiful web interface that just pops up and isn't used if no one's connected to it. Yeah, and it truly is pretty. I find it as one of those tools that's just nice to have on a system because there's always those times where suddenly something changes and the performance is impacted. There's there's IO wait suddenly. Who knows what's going on? When you have a NetData dashboard that you can immediately hop to and you don't have any lag waiting for it to get aggregated with the metrics from the 10 other servers in that class, you can just see that system immediately. And because you do have a little bit of history there, you can scroll back and see what changed. Was there a new process that got started? Did a new user log in? What's actually happening in real time? We just talked about a lot of great stuff about NetData, and it really is great. One tiny little problem is the installation is easy, but that's if you use their their installation script, which is smart enough to like work on just about any system I've ever tried it on. But if you wanted just a package for your repo, they haven't usually had those. They they do say in their current documentation they're working on having that. So you you might find some third party stuff. It's not always top quality, but they do have they do have manual installation. They have an automatic installer. They also have a Docker container, and I just noticed a pre-built static binary. So give one of those a shot as well and and maybe stay away from third-party systems. Okay, well, now that you've got everything all set up right on your local machine, what are all the goodies it found for you? All the things. Um, I'm looking at ZFS file system. I'm looking at firewall. I'm looking at network, uh, IPv4 and 6. Uh, I'm looking at, of course, you know, CPU, memory, and disk. Everything is split down into C groups. I got system D services. Really cool. I've got automatic monitoring of the uh, virtual machines that I've got running under KVM. Uh, I have a Unify server that manages my my uh, Ubiquity access points, and it picked that up immediately. Uh, just for grins, I started up a Windows 2016 virtual machine as well. And that didn't pop up immediately inside NetData, but all I had to do is refresh the tab and boom, there it is. You can see your CPU, you can see memory, you can see disk, you can see network inside the VM, whether it's Linux or Windows. I've also got an Apache server running on this workstation and I've got uh, multiple Apache sensors showing up in NetData. One of them even is, uh, it's monitoring the Apache logs in real time which is pretty impressive. So I'm in real time, I'm seeing, uh, you know, success versus error rates as they show up in the logs. That is pretty impressive. So you might be worried, what kind of resources does that take? Don't worry, the team behind NetData has actually spent a huge amount of time making sure it's lean and uses resources very efficiently. Basically, you don't have to worry. And of course, if you are worried about that, you can click to the NetData monitoring section of NetData, and it will show you exactly what resources NetData itself is using, uh, you know, as it's running, which, like Wes said, is completely minimal. The uh, the network traffic, even while you're actively looking at the page, so technically we're really only looking at anything going over a local host anyway, it's super pretty, it's updated in real time quite frequently, and it's a whopping, I'm looking at 20 kilobits. <laughs> I love that. And right when you're on the page too, it tells you how much memory and stuff it's using, right? It's like, oh yeah, you're keeping you're keeping metrics for one hour and 30 minutes and that's using 30 megabytes of, of memory. And you have this many metrics and they're updated this frequently. Like everything is just exposed, easily tweakable with sane defaults. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it doesn't use enough resources that I notice it even on my little itty bitty Celeron router with, you know, next to no memory. Truly a tool for just about any system. 
Well, clearly, Jim and I are about to be way too distracted playing with NetData to get any more recording done, so I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. But never worry, head on over to techsnap.system slash 397 to find all the great links we'll have for you, including a little blog post that'll describe some of the configuration Jim and I are using at home. Of course, you'll also find ways to get in touch over at techsnap.systems and a link to subscribe to our RSS feed. We're also headed to Linux Fest Northwest this year, and it's their 20th anniversary. Plus, we're going to have a huge collection of JB hosts and community, including both Jim and myself. We would love to see you there, and there's still time to go get all your travel details sorted out. If that's not going to work this year, well, I understand. And don't worry, just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com to find all the other great Jupiter Broadcasting shows. You can also find the network on Twitter at JupiterSignal. I'm there too. I'm at West Main. And of course, Jim, you're at JRSSNet. Thank you all for joining us. See you in a couple weeks. Bye.